Wow, what a beautiful song. Um, before I pray, can, can I just in, indulge you this morning, whether you're sitting, whether you're standing, whether you're online this morning, could you just put your hands out like this this morning as we gather to pray? Father in heaven, here we are before you, and we've sung this beautiful song where we recognize that all creation bows before you. And we have proclaimed that so will I. And Lord, as we are here this morning, our hands are open, open to receive from you your blessing, your word, and even your favor this morning. So Lord, as we humbly gather together in person and online, we ask that you would pour out your love through your spirit this morning and remind us of the great truths of the gospel and of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. May he be honored and glorified this day. We long to sense your blessing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Have a seat. Nice to have you here this morning. And guess what? We're concluding our series this morning. We're part 10 of Messy Life. So for nine weeks, we've been talking about life being messy. Okay? Um, now, if you've... Uh, had any opportunity to, to review the entire nine weeks. We've talked about all kinds of things that contribute to our messiness, contribute to our, uh, our you know, less than perfect life that most of us. And can I, can I challenge you this morning? I, I, don't know, I'm, I, I don't know why I'm asking this, but I'm going to ask this. If there was any part of this service, of this series, that was meaningful to you, um, could you just email me and say, what is it about this, this series that really touched you? Um, if you're online, I would love for you to do that online, and I could read those afterwards. Um, I don't know about you, but this has just been a, a, a beautiful reminder of what it means to be human. Can we talk about what it means to be human? None of us here are perfect. Amen? You know, life is messy in one way or another. Amen? And we have a God who still works in the midst of the mess. Amen? And, that, and, and isn't that the most hopeful message that we can have today? That in the middle of all this mess, God is still there. God is still working. That, that there's something going on. That we're not left. That the mess has to define us. How many, how many people do you know where the mess of their lives is actually the, what defines them? And isn't that sad? Isn't that tragic when there is someone that takes that mess and weaves a beautiful life out of it and, and weaves, you know, uh, a life of grace and a life of purpose and a life of hope and a life of meaning in the midst of that mess. And often it's the mess of our lives that God uses to touch another life. And unfortunately, we treat 
the mess as something that we need to walk, you know, to just... It's about control, right? It's all about control. When, when life gets messy, we feel like we're out of control. But let's, let's, let's just say, if you think you're in control of your life, again, I'm sorry, right? <laughs> I am really, I'm really sorry. We need to talk. <laughs> you know, we, need, we need to have a long, long conversation. If you think for a second you're in control of things. But isn't it wonderful to know that the one who is in control loves you and cares for you. And in the midst of the mess, you are not, you are not alone. Have you ever heard somebody say, life is hard or it is what it is? Have you ever, have you ever heard people say that? You know, life is hard, it is what it is. And what I like about these statements is that it tells you a lot about the person. Either the person has recognized that life is hard and, we're, you know, do what you can, or it is what it is, and they acknowledge that life is messy and they're dealing through it, or it's, it's a way of them saying, you know, I've given up. I've lost hope. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what else we could do. Like, there's two sides to that particular statement. And for those people that have given up, hopefully what we talk about today is going to turn the tide for people who have given up. But often when people have given up, they just have not given up on life itself and the way um, that life impacts us at certain points in time. But here's the next thing that many of these people will say. They'll say, God isn't there and God doesn't care. God isn't there and God doesn't care. That's what happens when life gets messy. Sometimes we kind of stand back and, 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 and you know, the, the problems are coming and the difficulties are, 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 you know, impacting us in really negative ways. And there's times that we can kind of say to ourselves, you know, why me? Why is it happening now? Timing couldn't be worse. It's just like, you know, they tell me that when, when you get lemons, you should make what? Lemonade, we've all heard those, you know, adages, and yet it's so hard when you don't have anything to make the lemonade with. And a lot of times we can, we can, we can go further than that. We can, we can not talk about fate, but we can talk about God not being there or God not caring about us. If you're a believer here this morning, I'm, I'm, I may be wrong. But even if you're a believer here this morning, this morning, there's a time in your life where you wondered if God was even there. There was a time in your life when you felt that God was judging you or doing something in your life that was hard and you feel like you were abandoned by God. Well, today... I'm, I'm going to kind of round up this particular series with a story that, you know, when I first thought about it, I thought, this is kind of an unusual story to end with this particular series on. But the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, the more I sensed that this story hopefully is an appropriate story, especially in the season of life that many of us are experiencing
And it comes out of Luke, Luke's gospel, out of chapter 4. And it's Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth. And Luke is recounting this story. And I just want to read what Luke writes. And we're going to unpack it a little bit as we go. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. Now, I just want to stop right there. Now, many of us, um, if you even have an iPad, a phone, you have your Bible, or if you have a hard copy of a Bible, you have chapter verses, you have titles, you have all kinds of stuff. But in those days, they didn't have chapter, verse, etc., etc. They had scrolls. And the scroll was one of Isaiah, one of Genesis, one of the prophet, you know, all of these different scrolls that they would hand over. And in this particular instance, they've given Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. Now, I don't know about you, but how many chapters? Okay, test time. All right? Okay, how many chapters in Isaiah? 66. And do you know in, in that particular day and age, there was no vowels. It was all consonants. And the consonants were one continuous line, okay? So you've got this scroll, and you know, have you ever seen you know, somebody open up a scroll and it goes to the ground and it rolls all the way you know, far down like that? This is the kind of thing that's happening. So Jesus has taken the scroll, and he goes to a particular passage in Isaiah. It's not like he's fumbling or he knows exactly where to go. And it's all one continuous stream of consonants, okay? So this is, this is a miracle in and of itself, just finding the place where you're going to read from, okay? Here's the other thing. How many of you know what a synagogue is? Kind of? Kind of? Okay. You've got the main temple in Jerusalem, and here... All through all the regions of this, and, and, and wherever they could find a, a city that would accept a synagogue, they would build one. And synagogues were like the community center in these, all, all these different regions in different towns. And, you know, we're talking about Nazareth here. So they would build a synagogue, and it would be kind of like a community center. It wasn't just for religious services. It had education. A lot of times, that's where children were educated. If there was a meeting, for instance, for the community to make a decision about something, they would meet at the synagogue. But it was primarily for worship. And typically, they would build a synagogue in the high place of a city. So it was, you know, um, the place where it was acknowledged that you'd have to look up to see the place of God because it had a prominent place in the city. It became the center of Jewish religious, social, educational life. Um, a, a, you know, a synagogue could only be established when there was 10 active male members of a synagogue. And as people... Um, gathered in a synagogue on the Sabbath. So this is a Saturday, by the way, that they would gather in, in, the, in, the, in the synagogue. There would be benches at the back, 
and there would be benches coming forward and there would be kind of in the center. In some of the synagogues or many of the synagogues, the person that read and did the preaching would be in the very center of the room and everybody would be surrounded, okay? Women and men were, were segregated. They could not sit together. And there was places of prominence for really important people that would be closer to what was called the bima. And the bima is this you know, platform. We would call this the bima. And when a person was reading scripture, they would stand up to read scripture. But when it became time to preach, they would sit down. And as you look at this particular passage, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus stands up to read the scroll of Isaiah. And then in a second, when we read the next part of the passage, he's going to sit down to accept questions and make the comments that he is going to make. What's really weird about the synagogue, if there was a visiting rabbi, they would be invited to speak that particular day. Okay? So it'd be like in church, if it was a visiting pastor, I would say, oh, we have a visiting pastor. I'm going to go to my office because this guy's going to speak today because he's just showing up. Okay? I, yeah. If you've been in church a long time, that's just really weird, isn't it? Okay? So this, this is, and by the way, um, we are told that this is the earliest presentation of what happens in a synagogue that we have on record, this particular passage, okay? So we don't have a whole lot historical, clear historical, um, you know, documents of what actually happens in a synagogue, but it had a very structured service. They had defined readings and defined uh, times of worship, and even outside most synagogues, they had kind of a, well, I don't want to call it a baptistry, but they would have this, this area where you could ritually wash yourself before going into the synagogue and to go in and worship. So this is a really significant moment when Jesus has done this. Now, why do I say all that? Because that's really neat historical stuff. But here is Jesus about to read something from the book of Isaiah that has people from every strata of life in that room. And he's about to say something really profound. And here is a group of people, Jewish people, who have been living in anticipation of the Messiah for at least 400 years of silence until now. Waiting for the Messiah and the hope of Israel to come. Waiting for the person who is going to fulfill the plans and the purposes of God for his people. And they have been waiting with great anticipation. And they would gather in these synagogues on a weekly basis, hearing the word of God, hoping for that future to materialize, and in many ways wondering if God would ever do something in their midst. And Jesus shows up on this particular day, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up, basically chapter 61, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, 
that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus then rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently because this is the moment that the person is going to preach. He's read the scriptures. Now he's going to tell them what it all means. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. There must have been at that moment... (laughs) there must have been at that moment a hushed silence because what Jesus was just proclaiming to them that after all these years of waiting, anticipating, expecting, God had finally shown up. God was going to do what he has promised for years to do, to bring the Messiah in and to accomplish what God said the Messiah would do. Now, I don't know about you, but there's lots of things that Jesus could have said or lots of passages that Jesus could have pulled out of. But to pull out of Isaiah 61, which, by the way, as a background, has, has to do with the Jubilee of Israel. I don't know anything about the Jubilee and, and you know, the, the times where every seven years... Um, Debts would be forgiven and people would be forgiven and, you know, the land would would lay fallow and all those kinds of things that there was this beautiful rotation in the Jewish calendar of redemption that was part of the whole Jubilee experience. But of all the people that Jesus addresses in that moment, he addresses the people who probably feel they have the least amount of hope when it comes to the Messiah. He talks about the poor. You know, there's four, four really easy categories to pull out of this particular passage. But Jesus talks about the poor. Those who would have been the least in that room at that time. Jesus is deeply concerned about the poor. Jesus does talk about the people who are impoverished economically. And I would argue with all of these categories that we're going to talk about, these four categories, it's not just the physical element that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the spiritual component as well. Now, does it mean that Jesus isn't concerned about the wealthy or people that are better off or anything like that? No, because... If God is concerned about the poor, that means he's concerned about the wealthy too. If God is interested in the least of us, he is also interested in the most of us. Because from a human standpoint, sometimes we neglect the poor. Sometimes we think of the poor less than us. Sometimes we judge the poor. Sometimes we see the poor in a very different way, but not the way that God sees them, that God cares for the poor. Jesus preached not only for the poor, but the salvation of the poor. Sometimes we think that salvation is only for the best of us, 
for the ones that are right with God or the ones that have lived life rightly. But we know that when life gets really messy, that the messiness resides on the poor the most. And God says that he cares about the poor. The next category is the captives. Jesus is concerned about the captives. And, and by the way, in, in the Hebrew, these are the people who are captured by the point of a spear, that they're prisoners of war, that these are the people who are affected by the political streams of the day, those that are caught in the middle. But also terminology here is people that are enslaved by the devil, enslaved by Satan. You know, early on in the series, we talked about our greatest enemy, whether you're a believer or not, is the devil. Even though in 2022, to talk about the devil seems like an, an incredibly naive and backward concept. And yet Jesus knew that the greatest enemy that each and every one of us have that would mess up our lives quicker than anyone is the devil. With the most powerful tool in his arsenal is the tool of lying, the tool of lies. It holds so many people captives, captives of his influence, captives of Habits, attitudes, lifestyles, you know, things that we cannot control, and yet they control us. Jesus talks about the blind, the ones that are, you know, uh, physically affected by a health ailment. But we can't overlook the spiritually blind. The spiritually blind are another category that Jesus would have alluded to when he talked about these. You cannot overlook the spiritually blind. We have, they have no idea of spiritual truth and the eyes of their souls cannot see because we live in a world that if I can't touch it, if I can't taste it, if I can't see it, if I can't smell it, it doesn't exist. Okay? By the way, you know, it always, it always bothered me that, you know, if, you believe, if you're a, belie- a, a, a Christian, you believe in God and all this kind of stuff, that people often treat you like you've got a closed mind. You ever, you ever worried about, you know, why, why is it if you believe in a spiritual world that we're the ones that have got a closed mind? Have you ever wondered about that? I would have thought, aren't we the ones with the open mind? Isn't it the other way around that if it's all just this, that isn't that a closed mind? Okay, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I, I just found that crazy. Can I say crazy up from the pulpit? Can I say? Okay, okay, I say crazy. All right. But open to the spiritual reality that exists. The fourth category that Jesus talks about is the oppressed. And older versions have, have the terminology of downtrodden. Jesus is concerned about the downtrodden, the ones who have been bruised by life. Um, you know, the Greek, the Greek word that's used here is to break into pieces. 
the people that have been broken by life to such a degree that their life is in shatters, heart is broken, they feel like they're in pieces, they don't feel whole again, they don't feel, you know, um, that's, that's why Jewish people would say shalom, because if you're broken into pieces, if I say shalom and want to bless you with shalom, that's the hope that you will be whole again, that you will be one again, that you will feel the integrity of life again. The bruising, you know, can happen in body and spirit, that many of us are broken spiritually and crushed physically. And Jesus is concerned for the downtrodden. Now, I don't know about you, but just, just to you know, pull out these categories in the way that Jesus did in that particular reading in the synagogue, would have said to everybody in that room, no matter who you are, no matter what life is thrown at you, no matter what category of social structure or social strata you belong in, God still cares for you. God has a plan and a purpose for you. That God's grace is still available to you. People may look at you and say, oh, there's the poor. People may look at you and say, there's the oppressed. There's the downtrodden. There's the captives. But despite all of that, despite the mess... God's favor is available. Now, that's how that passage ends, that God's favor is now upon you. Now, that's very, very significant because we don't talk about God's favor very much anymore in, 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 in modern church culture. We talk about God's blessing. We talk about, you know, God touching our lives or anything like that. But do you realize that in the midst of the mess, God's favor to you is still available. And the word for favor in Greek is actually the word accepted, acceptable, which is a really important distinction to make because anybody in that room, anybody in this room that falls in any one of those categories and even beyond feel that life is such a mess, God doesn't care anymore. And yet Jesus is reminding everyone in those categories, all the extremes and everything that life's messiness is that you are acceptable and accepted by God. That God still loves you. That there is good news for the mess that you find yourself in. And that this is for all people. That everyone sitting in that room would have heard that the favor of the Lord is now upon them. See, it's not just the fact that the Messiah has been sent into the world and he's going to make a difference. But the fact of the matter is the Messiah has come into the world and is going to demonstrate God's grace and love to me in the midst of whatever mess I find myself in. Life has hit me with this poverty. Life has hit me with an unfortunate captivity. Life has hit me in a way that has left me shattered and broken and downtrodden. And I feel alone. I feel like I've been judged. 
I feel like God has backed away. I feel like I'm no longer important. I feel like I've lost my worth. I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel. And yet, God still accepts me. That I live in the favor of the Lord. You know, we've, we've talked quite a bit the last nine weeks about all the things that affect us that can cause our life to be messy. But can I just encourage you that no matter what mess you are in today, that there's always hope. That there's always hope. That Jesus has come into the world, not into a perfect world, but in a world that has fallen, that is broken, and continues to affect us in negative ways, continues to add mess to the already messiness of this crazy world, you know, can you, can you believe what the last two years have been like, right? Right? We've, we've, we've had every, every kind of strife and battle, and there isn't a single area of life that doesn't have some anxiety attached to it. And yet, in the midst of all of that, hope is never gone. Because at the very worst of times, at the very worst of times, that is often what ignites hope the most. As, you know, as, as, we, as we close this morning, um, I want to remind you of the theme verse that we use for this particular series. It comes out of Philippians 1.6. Many of you, hopefully many of you have memorized this, okay? It's my particular life verse because it encapsulates so well a lot of the truths that the Bible talks about on a continual basis. Being confident of this, by, by the way, can I just stop at that? Here's the Apostle Paul who has been given revelation by God, written so much of the New Testament, and you ask him what he's confident about, okay? This is what he talks about, confident about. We, you know, we live in a culture that doesn't like us to be arrogant or confident about one thing. If there's something that I can be confident in my faith about, it's this particular truth this morning. The Apostle Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Whatever mess you're experiencing this morning, just know that God is doing a work in you even now, even now, that is a good work in you. Do you trust him to do that work to his glory and to your benefit? Messy life. Welcome to humanity. But welcome to the redeeming power of Christ 
in the midst of that messiness. Let's pray together. Father, in the midst of the messiness, we know you are still there. And yet sometimes the mess causes us to question and wonder if you even care. And yet time again, we're reminded of your great love, your great care in a world of brokenness and imperfection. Lord, thank you that despite the mess, we are still accepted in you. And Father, we pray that as we have gone through this series, that you will remind us again of your deep love for us. Thank you that our mess can be redeemed. Thank you that our mess doesn't destroy the power of hope, nor does it destroy the work of Christ in our life. So, Lord, we thank you for this series. We thank you for each one that's participated in it. And we pray, Lord, that we would continue to live out Philippians 1.6, recognizing that you are doing a good work in us until the day that Christ returns. In his name, amen.